Hey, welcome home. There's always room for one more. It's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, it's been quite the March and April that my wife and I have been through. You, some of you have probably heard about the film Return to Palau, which we've been premiering. We premiered here and several other places around the country. Just last week, we were in Orlando for a film festival and also for my niece's graduation. Uh, it's good to be away, but it's better to be back. How's that? I thought I got one amen. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And our community has been busy too, right? We've had Easter and Alumni Weekend and communion and all kinds of fantastic stuff. And this kind of marks a, a point in the road for us this summer because Southwestern students, most of them have vacated for whatever reason they don't want to stick around. I don't know why, summer camp or something. I know there's a few faithful Greek students that are here and some others that are around for the summer that live in this community. Courage to you, those that one more week in Greek, right? One more week in Greek. <laughs> It's good to be with you this morning. There's one other uh, piece of news that I'd like to share with you that's big for Melissa and I, and I'll go ahead and put this up on the screen. Some of you may have heard about this this week. Yeah, Baby Gibson coming November 2022. We took There's Always Room for One More very literally. Amen, amen. Melissa's in the back. She was helped serving in the breakfast today. Let's give it up for her, because she's the one that's doing the work on this one. I've mildly contributed at this point. We're, we're really excited. We're really excited for what God is doing in our lives. And you know, I, I'm new at this gig, right? This is going to be uh, our first baby, but apparently you have to think about naming the baby, right? So we've spent some time uh, thinking about names and names have meaning, don't they? Your name perhaps have, has a meaning. Melissa and I have talked about, uh, was throwing some names around. Don't worry, no spoilers today. We're not going to uh, throw any of those out there. But our names have meaning, and in some ways they can maybe chart the path of the future. And as we think of the little one that we're bringing into this world, the significance of the name that we might give that little one could chart their future. In 1994, there was this term that was coined, it was called nominative determinism. And it, it basically means that people's names may affect where they go in their lives. Centuries before, most often, your name might reflect your occupation. So we can play a little game this morning, a little uh, guessing game. I'll give you a little bit of real and you can respond. I think you'll do well on this one. So say perhaps you are apt at mixing a little bit of, of wheat and a little bit of oil and a little bit of water and some yeast. Your surname might be Baker right? Uh, bread, that would be a good one too. That would be a good one too. Or what about, what about if you're really good at making tools with, with metal? You'd be Smith, right? Smith, you'd be Smith, Baker. What about this? What if, what if, you're, you're catching on a little bit. What about if you're the fastest Olympic athlete? Usain Bolt, right? Yeah, okay. What about this one? What if you work for a water research center? Maybe your name would be Andrew Drinkwater. All right, what if you worked for the Perth Airport? Do you know Fiona Lander? Uh, that was a pretty good one. And, and my favorite, last but not least, no, oh, you put it up. What if you worked for the Sun Prairie Fire Department? Lieutenant Les McBurney. Come on. Right, isn't that a pretty cool name? You work for a fire department. It basically sums up, sums up everything that you do in life. Just Les McBurney. Names mean something. There's significance to our names matching our identities, isn't there? 
And we've been on a journey for probably the, the past six or eight months, at least in Elevate in our sermon series. We took a look at righteousness by heart. We got to think way back to, to fall. Some of you have already blocked out the previous, previous semester uh, or six months ago. You're like, that is, that is out of sight, out of mind. But we looked at righteousness by heart and perhaps the way of Jesus, the way that he operates and the way that he wants us to operate. And then we looked at hope has a name, right? The hope of Jesus that we have in the name of Jesus. And now we're going to be journeying through a series this summer called Hello, My Name Is. And we're going to be, be introduced to the who of Jesus. Our gauge question this morning that Abby asked just a few moments ago, how would God introduce himself to you? What name do you think God would choose? Have you even thought to ask the question, God, what is your name? Maybe there's a name that he wants to go by for you that's different than everybody else's. There's multiple times in scripture where he's coming and he's saying a different name to different people, still same God, but he wants to be known by his name. Is there a name that encapsulates the entirety of who God is, the entirety of his being? God introducing himself to us is not unknown or unfamiliar to the writers of scripture. Theologians would call these moments or occurrences theophanies. There's your dollar word for the day, okay? You can take that one home. Theophanies. A theophany is a personal encounter with a deity. To put it simply, it's God showing up and saying, hello, my name is fill in the blank. And this morning, we're going to look at two of those theophanies in Scripture that will set, up, set us up for the rest of the summer. You guys ready? Sound interesting? Here so far, I told you we were having a baby, and your mind has just gone someplace completely else, right? So here we go to the first one. One of the clearest instances of a theophany happening in Scripture is to a man by the name of Moses. You've heard of him? Leader of the Israelites, guy that part of the Red Sea, all that kind of stuff. You can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 for two verses. And then we're going to go to another section of scripture to see the second theophany. But if you're not familiar with who Moses is, he's born a slave in Egypt. His mother has to, to hide him. And he, he gets old enough where she can't hide him anymore because there's a, 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 a bolo out for Israelite babies. And they're being massacred by Pharaoh. And she puts him in a, a little basket and sets him on the Nile. And it turns out that God and his divine wisdom orchestrates it so that Moses floats by Pharaoh's daughter. She's bathing in the river and she takes him in as her own and then ends up being Moses' mother that takes care of him while he's in the court. And he grows up in Pharaoh's household. And there comes a point where he's living the life of a king, but he's very much acquainted with his heritage, the slaves who are toiling day and night in the hot Egyptian desert trying to benefit Pharaoh or Pharaoh having them benefit him. Gets to the point that he's frustrated, commits a murder, and then runs to the desert. And he spends 40 years tending sheep. I don't know about you, but that's not the thing that I want to sign up for. That kind of seems a little bit boring. I don't know, there's probably a lot of stuff that you could learn, and Moses did learn. And there's a moment as he's come to fruition on these 40 years that God sets this little bush on fire with his presence and Moses happens upon it. And it's one of the greatest theophanies of all time. One of the greatest moments that God shows up and says, hello, my name is. It's at the burning bush. 
as Moses approaches, that God says, hold on, don't take any steps further. Where you're standing right now is holy ground, Moses. Understand the place that you're walking into. This is important times for you and for me. Know who you are encountering. And then God begins to unpack for Moses the plan that he has for Israel. The one that he told Abraham 400 years before, that it'll be 400 years. And then my people, they're going to come out of slavery. Moses, you're the guy to lead them. And Moses says, is there anybody else around here you're talking to God? You're talking to me? And then he asks God a question. Exodus chapter three, verse 13. We'll put it up on the screen for you. But Moses protested. After God had said, Moses, you're the guy. I'm the God. We're gonna take people out of Israel. Moses is like, whoa, hold on. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell? God, what name do you want to go by as I go back to these people? They're going to want to know the person that is leading them. And God has an opportunity right here to put on display for Israel through his name what he is going to be doing for them. And I imagine God pausing for a moment. Not that he doesn't know, but he's wanting Moses to sink in the significance of the name that he is about to share with Moses. Exodus 3, verse 14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And you look at that and you're like, well, that's kind of a, a weird name. There's a personal pronoun and a statement of being. That kind of sums up what God is going for here. But this word in Hebrew is that Yahweh, the name above all names, the great I am, the one that Greek scholars would translate to ego eimi, I am, the great I am. The Hebrew equivalent at this point, Yahweh, I am, God is showing up. And if he were to do that today, what he would say is, it's me. There's no other qualifiers that need to be had. All you need to know is that it's me. And I think there's a profound beauty to the simplicity of God's introduction to Moses. To simply say, hello, my name is I am. And this name would become the most ubiquitous name for God in all of scripture. Yahweh is smattered all over these pages. Ego me is there as well. You see, God's presence is essential to his identity. The fact that God is, is the only thing that we need to know. His presence, him showing up in the room is what his identity is all about. He's the present God. Not the God who's far off. Not the God, not the not-to-be-bothered God. And this is an extreme contrast to the gods that are in the, the Egyptian array of gods that they would worship. The gods that they worship are distant. You had to appease them while you walked this earth. And then when you went into the afterlife was about the only time, if you made it to the afterlife, that you would interact with those gods. And God says, I'm different than what you've been experiencing for the past 80 years, Moses. I'm different than what Israel has been living under for the past 400 years. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And most importantly, you and your people need to know that I am. 
even when it's felt like I haven't been. I've been with you this entire time. This attribute of God, I believe, is the single most attribute for God to have. It's the one that every other one of his character facets is centered around. Think about this. God could be the most caring. He could be the most loving, the most compassionate, the most forgiving God, the one that takes you out to ice cream regularly and just has a fantastic, you do all of those things. But if he is not present, he is none of those things. How can you love someone you're not in the presence of? How can you have compassion for someone you are not in the presence of? It's God's being, his ability to be with us that makes everything else in his character fall into place. God will spend the rest of the Old Testament introducing himself with these words, I am. He'll say, my name is Yahweh Jireh. I am the provider. We're going to sing about that here in a few moments. My name is Yahweh Rafi. I am the healer. My name is Yahweh Michadesh. I am sanctifier. My name is Yahweh Shalom. I am your peace. My name is Yahweh Rohi. I am your shepherd a few examples of the different ways that God introduces himself in the Old Testament. Maybe you've got a different name for God, but one that that fits this equation. The one that God says, I am, and then we'll add a qualifier to it, not because his presence is insufficient, because his presence helps us understand how he brings peace, how he provides, how he sanctifies, and how he is our shepherd. We must leave the burning bush aside for a moment because God will step it up a notch. He'll introduce the theophany of the man Jesus. You ever heard about him? He's a pretty cool guy. And I'm excited this summer that I get to spend some moments with you introducing you to him or reintroducing you to him as he tells us about his name. Jesus came to this earth knowing full well who he is and was and will be. And he would drop hints throughout the entirety of the Gospels as to his identity. And he would even ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? What is my identity to other people? Now, who do you say that I am? The Gospels are always pointing back to that bush encounter. The one where Moses had to remove his shoes, Jesus uses it over and over again. And John the kind of oddball of the group in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of hang together, and then John's kind of the, the guy that's, that's over here. John's the one that will use the I am statements as a literary device in his Gospel that will introduce us to who Jesus is. So if you've got your Bibles, flip over to John chapter 6. We'll be in just a few verses here, and then we'll sing some more songs. John chapter 6, verse 15. When Jesus saw that they, it's his disciples, were, or not, not his disciples, but the, the people that were around him in this public gathering, were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills to be by himself. And that evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. Apparently, there's some instructions that they were to be at that, that point, and they were going to wait for Jesus to come back from a solitary place. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Well, Jesus had given us some instructions and we know we needed to go to Capernaum, so why don't we just go ahead and jump in the boat like Jesus can catch up. 
Have you ever done that in your life? You know the end point. You maybe know the decision that you need to make, but the timing isn't quite right yet. You're like, ah, God will catch up. I know the plan. I know where I'm going to go. That will 100% always get you into trouble, as evidenced by this story. Soon, a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. The region that they were in was prone to these types of storms. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat, and they were terrified. And I want to pause right there. John is very brief in his description of this story. You can read in the other gospels how they unpack it more. And and Peter says, Jesus, let me walk out on the water, all that kind of stuff. John says, that's not what I'm getting at. To John, the the storm isn't that necessarily important other than to know that the disciples are in trouble. The timing isn't that important other than to know that this is actually happening. It's what Jesus will say next that's important. And forget that he's walking on water. I mean, that's really cool, right? I don't know about you. I've tried it. It doesn't work. I pretend to do it when I wakeboard or ski or something like that. I've tried barefooting. That hurts when you fall. Uh, We sink very, very quickly when we encounter water with our feet, right? But that's not the sermon that I came here to preach today about walking on water. We can leave that one for another time. It's what Jesus says next that's the most important thing for John. John chapter 6, verse 20. He called out to them, don't be afraid. I am here. And pause right there. Bible translators struggle with this passage because what Jesus really said was, don't be afraid. I am. It doesn't make sense in English. So the Bible translators have to put in a, a little here, there. Or, don't worry, it's me. Like all this kind of thing. No, Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am. And I imagine in this moment that Jesus is not necessarily donning his best Charlton Heston impersonation and he's got his big chest voice and he's saying, don't be afraid, I am. I think Jesus, just enough to be heard over the winds and the waves, speaks to his disciples and says, don't be afraid, it's me. You know, when, when uh, you, you, c- you come home to, to your roommate or to your spouse or to your kids and you, you crack the door open, And the common courtesy to just identify who you are, you know, I don't walk into my house and say, Michael Gibson has arrived. No, no, no. But you walk in and all you've got to do is say two words. It's me. And your spouse, your roommate, your kids, whoever it might be, knows exactly who it is by the sound and the tone of your voice. You don't have to yell it. You don't have to go find them. Simply say, it's me. And I think Jesus had in his mind at this moment with his disciples, this burning bush experience where God shows up and says, I am who I am. Jesus has got that in mind, but I'm not sure the disciples pick up on it in that moment. And I don't think Jesus was trying to get them to to have it all figured out right here. All he's trying to let them know is to say, it's me. I'm, I'm present with you in this moment. I'm here. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. It's me. In verse 21, The story finishes. Then they were eager to let him in the boat. Oh, it's Jesus. Okay, yeah, 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 you come in. We're worried if he was a ghost, then they don't want want a ghost in our boat. But if it's Jesus, it's cool. And they immediately arrived at their destination. Isn't that pretty cool? You let Jesus in your boat and the other side of the lake. Sign me up. Gas prices with where they are. Like, Jesus, hop into my car in Fort Worth in an instant, right? Jesus in this moment, his presence comforted his disciples. Jesus' presence was enough. For him to say, it's me. He says, I'm here. His presence calmed the hearts of the disciples and the raging storm. 
As soon as Jesus says it's me, as soon as Jesus says I am, the storm listened and the disciples listened. Everything was calm and they're on the other side of the lake. Bruce Milne in the message of John commentary puts it this way. Christ's presence brings renewed hope and power to his dispirited church and where needed to individual lives. The last word does not lie with the world no matter how threatening its manifestation. We live in a messed up, wicked, broken world. There's no doubt about that. But God's utmost desire in these times is that we would know that he is present and that his presence brings peace. That it's enough to know that God is and to leave it at that. Yes, his character will be shown before us. We'll get to know him on an an intimate basis. But to start with the presence of God and let his presence open up for us in amazing ways and transform us on the inside. All that we need to know to navigate the crazy world is that God is, full stop. And we can figure out the rest as we learn to grow and to trust him. We'll be spending the rest of this summer getting to know the presence of Jesus better through the eyes of John. He'll introduce himself as the bread of life, the light of life, the good shepherd, all the while saying, I am those things. And, you know, we can get caught up in the, in the nuances and the significance of those details. It's like, wow, Jesus is bread. Like, that's pretty cool. Some other people didn't think that was really cool. They thought that that was blasphemy or just flat out weird. And these intricacies of, uh, of what God's name means to us are important. But when asked directly at the burning bush, what his name is, and in the middle of the storm when he introduces himself, God simply chooses to answer, it's me, I am. That's all you need to know at this point. I am, I exist, I am present in your life. I am. The one truth that Jesus came to communicate to us is that he is. Every other thing that he does and his being centers around the fact that he is. It's the reality of his presence. And in the presence of Jesus, all else finds its place. In the presence of Jesus, all else finds its place. You're like, that's cool. We looked at a couple of Bible stories, like, that's great. But what if I haven't felt that presence of God? A couple of months ago, I was away on a campus ministries retreat to the, one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's called Rosario Beach. If you ever have a chance to get up into the Puget Sound, Northwest Seattle, it's, it's just amazing. And I spent the time with our, our student leaders in, our, in the sessions that we were at and being nurtured and filled by the speakers that were there. And I regularly would go out in the early morning and hit the trails that were around in this area. And I did it day in and day out. Over that weekend, I I ran and walked the equivalent of a marathon. It was amazing. I loved it. And I remember being on those trails and pouring my heart out to God. We're in this amazing, beautiful place. And I'm thinking in my mind about what's coming up for the rest of the semester, what's coming up for the rest of this year. That point, we didn't know we were having a baby and that's weighing on the back of my mind. I'm like, God, where are you at? What's up? What's going on? Can you you speak into my life at this moment? At this moment in time, do you have anything for me of value, anything that I could take from you? 
And I remember on the last morning that I was there that I was able to get out early. It was a Sabbath morning. And I hit this trail. It was one that I really wanted to get to, but the rain was coming and I said, no, I'm just, I'm gonna do it no matter what. I can dry off later. It's, it's not gonna matter. The clothes can be washed. And I get, in, get out to this beautiful island that's got these kind of small rolling hills with grass and there's these big pine trees. And I round a bend and I'm pouring my, my heart out to God. And it's either raining or I'm crying and I couldn't really tell the difference between the two. And I said, God, what's up? Where are you at? And in that moment, I just felt this warm hug. And God whispered in my ear, I am. God, where are you at? I am. Michael, it's, it's me. I can hear you. You don't need to know all the answers right now because I'm working in your life. It's me. And my tears turned to tears of joy. I just began to laugh. The biggest laugh of all time because we can get so caught up sometimes wondering where God's at. God, what are you going to do in my life? Where is this going to go? How am I going to pay for school? How am I going to get out of school? How am I going to find a job? Greek is a bear. What am I going to do? And all God simply whispers to us, I am. I am. And the beautiful part about all of this, that is in the presence of God, in the presence of of Jesus, all else finds its place. We enter into where God is, nothing else matters. That's how he introduced himself to me back in February. How will God introduce himself to you this summer? Let's pray. God, the I am, thank you for nothing else but than being present, for being the God who is here, for being the God who is. No other God compares to you. So God, this summer, whether we are being introduced to you for the first time or reintroduced to you again, may you, the I am, be present in our lives, starting even today. God, lead us to a burning bush Take us out on storm-tossed waters, whatever it takes for us to realize that you are the I am. And in your presence, everything else finds its peace. In Jesus' name I pray.